Good news, bad news, best news, okay? Good news, you may have heard there was a basketball game this afternoon. And Michigan State won, which, as you may have also heard, if you read my blog, had a friendly wager with C.J. Mahaney, diehard Maryland fan. So he will be coming back to preach here. That was the wager. And uh, so the rich get richer. And he will be coming here. And also, per our agreement, will be posting something on his blog about the superiority of the Spartans and with a picture of himself in Spartan gear. So that all is good news. So I do feel sorry for my friend and almost felt very sorry for all of us. Uh, The texts coming in on my phone were 444, this game is over, no way Izzo will let this slip away, 448, oh my, 449, we're all screaming here, 450, we're very depressed. (laughs) Okay, good news. Bad news, we have some speaker problems, though this seems to be working, but something is, is not quite right, wasn't quite right this morning. There's some, a lot of speakers in the back and not over here or something. And then we've tried with these monitors, and this is a classic case of the cure is worse than the disease when we try to turn these things on. So we have Tom Spaulding working on it, which is as good as fixed. So we will be making an effort to fix these things by next week. But it sounds like you can hear me. Best news, which makes those other two bits of news really quite irrelevant, is that God has spoken to us in his word. And Jesus Christ is Lord, no matter the building, the sound system, the score, the government, the unemployment rate. Jesus is Lord, and he has good news for us in this book. And we start tonight a series... So carry us through the summer, and you'll see why, because of the pace, from 2 Peter, 2 Peter. Before I read our short text, I need to spend a few minutes breaking one of the cardinal rules that I give our interns when they preach. I tell them, when you start a, a book of the Bible, don't waste any time talking about the authorship of the book, because everyone out there will say, Paul, an apostle, to the Ephesians, and they'll well, I guess Paul, I don't know what the the issue is. So, to bring up debates that are sort of uh, always raging in liberal scholarship is not helpful. So I say, just don't even bother with that. Well, I need to break that rule just a teeny little bit for this book, because... If there is any book in the Bible that is questioned, it is this book of Second Peter. Even very conservative Orthodox theologians who accept the authority of this book have noted that it is among the most debated. For example, B.B. Warfield, the great lion of Princeton, one of the most important defenders of the inspiration and authority of Scripture said this about a century ago about the inclusion of Second Peter in the canon, in the books of the Bible that comprise our New Testament. He said, It is admitted on all hands that there is less evidence for Second Peter than for any other of our books. 
Even John Calvin, who did assume that Peter wrote Second Peter, acknowledged that the early church had doubts about this epistle. And so, among many scholars, this is the one in particular. They say there's just no way that Peter actually wrote this, is what they contend. And it is true that it was debated in the early church. And I don't want to get too far afield here into a, a whole talk about how did we get our New Testament canon, though I think I've done that once and I should probably just do it every three or four years because it's a, it's a perennial issue and it's probably one that comes up on campus. What we know is from the early 200s, Second Peter was accepted in the eastern end of the Mediterranean. But during that time, its authority seems to have been disputed in the West. And the issue was not finally settled until 367. Athanasius writes a letter to commemorate Easter, and he includes a list of the books that should be accepted in the New Testament canon. And that list that he gave are the 27 books in our New Testament. And Second Peter was one of those. It appears again in 397 A.D. in a list given by the Synod of Carthage. So by the end of the 4th century, it, it's the, the, the debate is over. Second Peter is accepted as genuine, received by the church. And prior to that, it was accepted by some and it was disputed by others. Those are just the facts. The main debate has always been whether or not Peter actually wrote this book. If Peter wrote it, then everyone agrees it ought to be in the New Testament. If it's uh, some sort of forgery, then it shouldn't probably. Here are just a list of some objections that people give, raise, why, why they think Peter couldn't have written this book. Number one, they say that the Greek is different than the Greek in First Peter, different vocabulary, different syntax. Number two, they argue that First Peter uses a lot of Scripture, but Second Peter deals more with Greco-Roman philosophical themes. And that the, the themes of the two letters are very different. So how could the same person have written both of them? Number three, they argue that parts of Second Peter are almost identical to the book of Jude, which is true. And so they argue, well, why would Peter, the, the great Peter, the apostle, chief among equals in the early church, why would he have borrowed from Jude, the brother of our Lord, but not even an apostle? Why would he have borrowed from him to write his letter? That doesn't make sense. Number four, they argue Second Peter, when it refers in chapter 3 to Paul's writings as, quote, the other scriptures, chapter 3, verse 16, they say, look, how, how could Peter, how could the church so have early in the history of the church describe Paul's letters as scripture? Isn't that just a, a, a later accretion? And that, that's something that the church later acknowledged, but it couldn't have acknowledged it so early and then fifth, many people like to point out that it was common in the ancient world to write a letter or a, a book and use someone else's name. It's called pseudopigrapha. Pseudo means false. Graphe means writing. So false writings. You would write this letter and you would attach someone's name to it. And many people have said it wasn't lying. It was just understood. People received it. And it was sort of play acting. It was someone saying, well... What might have Peter said? And here's a letter and we'll address it as Peter. Those are the reasons that people raise and say, look, this book is not really 
written by the one it says. Let me just briefly respond to each of those objections. Number one, the Greek in the first and first and second Peter may be different. But if you think about it, it's hardly enough to compare writing when you have first Peter, which you can see takes up oh, three pages in your Bible and second Peter, which takes up two pages. So you have five pages worth of writing for an entire person's life, and from that to try to determine, well, what his Greek really should have been. It should have looked like this. You have such a small little sample. It's like taking you know, two emails that you've written over 60 years and sort of saying, well, look, this email is different than that email. It could, well, you, you have no idea what their sort of vocabulary was. It's just such a small sample. Second, yes, Peter does talk about some different themes from... Greco-Roman concepts, but there's no reason to think that Peter couldn't have written about this. We simply, we don't know what Peter's education was. People assume, well, he, how, how could he really know about these things? We know very little of Peter's biography from the time he was with Jesus and the time that Acts leaves off Peter's life until now. We don't know what he was reading, what he was understanding. We, we don't know the sort of issues he was facing in ministry. Third, it is possible that Peter borrowed from Jude. They are similar, and I think they're, they're similar enough. You, you have to think there's some sort of borrowing, but you could have just as easily had Jude borrow from Peter, or even if Peter did borrow from Jude, who's to say that there was a problem with borrowing from another leader in the church who wasn't an apostle? It's just imposing our categories to think he couldn't do that. Number four... It simply is, is special pleading to think that Peter could not have acknowledged Paul's letters as Scripture from such an early date in the church's history. If you think about Paul's own letters, he is often talking about his apostleship and his authority. It makes perfect sense that by 68 A.D., a few years after Paul's death, that already the church would be acknowledging that these letters which had carried so much weight and were being read in all the churches were more than just letters. They were scriptures. And if you look just a moment at chapter 3, verse 16, you see Peter refers to Paul's letters. He says, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Now, think about it. If you are trying to to make something up, you're trying to puff up Paul and you, you're trying to insert something and say Peter wrote it and and insert something from another time, or maybe you're, you're 50 years later and you're, just, you're, you're trying to puff up Paul and say other scriptures, and it's, it's really an, an anachronism. You would not include this statement that they are hard to understand. <laughs> if you wanted to put something in Peter's mouth, don't make him say, well, man, I'm, Paul's kind of tricky. <laughs> I mean, that's not the sort of thing that you decide to make up. This has the ring of authenticity to it. And fifth, this whole business about writing under a pseudonym or a pen name. Yes, it was common in the ancient world, but it's, it's not certain that an audience like this would have picked up on such a literary device. And more importantly, 
the church placed such a huge emphasis on apostolic authority, on the eyewitness account, as we'll point out a little bit later in chapter 1, that they would have never been inclined to accept a book under a pseudonym. The whole reason they they accepted certain books is because they were written by apostles or by those who were the associates to the apostles. They never would have accepted and say, well, we know this. I mean, this really wasn't Peter. This is just somebody else pretending to be Peter. And lots of Greeks write letters like this. They never would have accepted its authority. It would run counter to everything that they believed about passing on the traditions of Jesus. So, probably don't need to convince you anyways, but this will play into a point that we'll get to in a few moments. So, that's why I've spent this time on it. There are good reasons then to accept Second Peter was written by Peter. It deserves a place in the canon as the other 26 books in the New Testament do. If you see in verse 1, Simeon, Peter. It's very strange. Only one other place in the New Testament in Acts 15 verse 14 does it give this Hebraic form of his name. Simeon. I mean, Simeon is the Jewish tribe. And he's usually called Simon Peter, which is a more Greco-Roman way of saying it. But here, Simeon Peter, which again speaks to it, Peter actually having written it using his, his full Hebraic name. And to show you the, the lengths at which people go to want to justify their own conclusions, you can read in the commentaries and people say, Aha, well that's how smart this author was. He knew he was trying to sound like the authentic Peter, so he would use this name that no one ever used. Better to just say, well, it's Peter. He talks as if he is Simon Peter. He claims in verses 16 and following of chapter 1 to have been on the Mount of Transfiguration. He brings his personal experiences to bear on this letter. And that's probably why the early church, at least in the East, did accept it very early on. It was already in some of the lists of Scripture by the 3rd century. And so imagine, no one then would have just pulled it out of thin air to put it in the 3rd century. So there must have been church fathers like Irenaeus already in the 2nd century who were acknowledging it. And we know that very early church fathers like Clement had the book and referenced the book. So all of that is just a preface to convince you of something you probably don't need to be convinced of, but that there are good reasons for thinking and believing that what you see in verse 1 is the truth. Peter wrote Second Peter. Now, let's look at verses 1 and 2. Simeon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. When I work on these sermon series, I I plan them out several months in advance, at least plan out how the sermons are going to break down. And I don't always remember what's coming up next until I get to the week that I'm going to preach in. I pull out the worship schedule. So I knew that Second Peter was coming up. And I was surprised by myself to look at the worship schedule. And one and two, what was I thinking? Verses one and two, it just says, Peter... To you, hello, here we go. I mean, that's, that's 
what, what was I thinking with just two verses? But have no fear. I have discovered, you are not surprised, that these two verses are packed with a lot. And you don't have to make it up. There is a lot in here. So we will have no trouble spending the remainder of our time on these two seemingly mundane verses. But they are not. I think I've said many times in sermons that part of being a Christian or being a healthy church is learning to hold what seem to be opposites, what seem to be working against each other and holding them together. Learning to glory in Christ's diverse excellencies, as Jonathan Edwards put it. It is, it's a tendency, a danger in churches and Christians, I feel it in my own life, to want to so focus in on one part of truth, and it, it's completely true, but you look at it to the exclusion of something else, or you, you want to lean into this truth, and you do so by neglecting this equal truth, and you end up in a very unhealthy place. And there are all sorts of these in the Bible. And I think we see four of them in these two verses. Four contradictions of the Christian faith that aren't. Or to put it another way, four seeming contradictions. Four pairs that seem to be opposite. You, you should just, you, you have to pick one or the other. But as Christians, we need to have both. Four contradictions of the Christian faith that aren't. Number one, Peter was a servant and an apostle. You see that in verse one. And what comes to mind with those two words? Hear the word apostle. You sort of imagine it being said like that. An apostle, someone who has authority, a leader, boldness. Foundational to the church. Directive. That's apostleship. Then you think of the word servant. And it has to be sort of said that apostle, servant. It's just, it just sounds different. You think of someone who's under authority. Someone who's a follower. Someone who's gentle. Someone who's not as important. Someone, instead of being directive, is Responsive, instead of giving orders, takes orders. An apostle and a servant. Peter knew that he was both. And not just did he know he was both, but this is how he wanted to describe himself coming to the very end of his life. Look at verse 13. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter knows he's going to die. As best as we can tell, he dies in, in 68 AD. Shortly after this is written, he dies under Nero. He knows that this may be and is the last piece of writing that he will communicate to the world, to his churches. Certainly he knows it's coming to the very end. And so 
toward the end of his life, almost giving a sort of last will and testament. How does he want to describe himself? What, what does he want to have on his tombstone? Servant? Apostle. Two words. Servant is the Greek word doulos. It can mean slave. It's one of lowly position. Of course, in the church, it was a term of honor. It ought to be a term of honor. That traces back into the Old Testament. The servants of God. That was no meager thing. That was a great title of honor to be a servant of God. Even a slave of God. See, it makes all the difference in the world whose servant you are. If, if I'm meagerly trying to help my wife with dinner preparations and sort of trailing her around and she's doing all the work because I'm clueless and she's setting the table and could you at least help me? And I follow her around and put a napkin down. Put a net. What side does that go? Do I fold it? I'm just putting it on. Just, and she gives me the lofty title of assistant to the table setter. Well, that's something. And it's not much. If, however, you were assistant to the President of the United States, I'd say, well, that's an important position. If you were a housekeeper, now there's nothing. I mean, housekeeper is a position honoring, glorying to God. In our culture, we probably don't esteem it if you were a housekeeper for the queen oh that's something different you are a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ who wouldn't want to be assistant to the Lord of the universe what, what better position I'm just a servant and my boss made you well that's pretty good and he rules you and he rules everything Okay, so when Peter says, I'm a servant, he's not just having his tail between his legs, but he's saying, my position is one of service. I am here to serve my master, further his objectives, carry out his orders, deliver his messages, accomplish his goals, work for his honor above my own. That's what it means to be a servant. And Peter also says he's an apostle. Apostolos, one who is sent. And I think he uses it here in the technical sense. There's a more general sense of apostle as a sent out one. I think this is the more technical sense. Capital A, apostle, one who had been with Christ, who had saw, was a witness of the resurrected Christ, specifically commissioned by Christ. These were sort of like the church planters, apostles slash prophets. They were the ones who, who wore the prophetic mantle like Isaiah and Jeremiah in the days of old. This was a very special class of people. There were 12 apostles, and then Matthias replaces Judas, and then Paul is specifically commissioned. So there aren't very many. This is quite a designation. I mean, if you say you're a senator of the United States, that's something. There's only a hundred. Well, there's only a baker's dozen of these kind of apostles. It's a big deal. Peter is saying with this word, my position is one of authority. I teach, I adjudicate, I lead. I'm uniquely called, uniquely commissioned by Christ Himself. And He has no problem saying both of those. An apostolos and a doulos. A slave and an apostle. 
and we tend to want to lean into one more than the other so that some Christians really want to lean into we are servants. We're all called to be servants, which is absolutely true. But if they lean into it in an unhealthy way, it sort of becomes, well, as a Christian, you don't really you don't really make decisions. We don't really believe in leaders or authority. And you're sort of just passive, lifeless, lowly, just, uh, just a little mousy servant. And that's how you go about life. That's not healthy. Other people resonate with the strength of Peter, an apostle. They're attracted to a Christianity that's strong and influential and powerful. That's why we must never forget that the first leaders in the church described themselves as servants and apostles. We would use the language, you've all heard it, of a servant leader. Now, I find that people, again, with that term, they usually are using it and they want to lean into one word more than the other so that people will say, okay, you're the pastor, but you're a servant leader, which... You say it like that means, no, I don't get you to get up on your high horse or too big for your britches. I know you're a pastor, you're a leader, but you're a servant and you serve us. You have 300 bosses. Ha ha, there you go. Or other people just sort of use servant as a kind of clearing of their throat. Yes, I'm a servant leader, which means I am the boss. And because I'm a, I say I'm a servant leader, you shouldn't question it because I have your best interests at heart and I know what is good for you. Well, neither of those are helpful. Here's what God wants us to be. Be strong, but use your strength to serve. Be strong, okay? You you have gifts. Make decisions. Many, not all, are called to be leaders. You're all called to be leaders in, in different spheres, whether it's at work or church or family or just a situation on the on the playground and whether it's a basketball team or some kids getting picked on, God's calling you to be a leader right there. We all have times to be a leader where you have to be strong, but you use your strength to serve. Think of the kings in the Old Testament. Perfect examples of how this goes wrong. You have on the one hand, you have the, the, many of the worst kings who are just tyrants. They're like Rehoboam and they want to put a heavy yoke on people. And they don't exist to serve others. They exist to attract, um, extract things from others. That, that's the kind of leader. Very unhealthy. But just as often, if you remember the kings, the worst leaders were wimps. Even you could say Rehoboam, who was this tyrant, who was so... Um, you know, my little finger's thicker than my father's loins. Oh, boy, that's big talk. But you remember, it's because he was such a pushover with his friends who were these scoundrels telling him what to do. And so many of the bad kings, they were under the thumb of their wicked mother. Or as soon as the, the godly high priest died, then the whole kingdom went to pot because they didn't have a backbone. And church people sometimes don't get this. Now, thankfully... This church has, is so blessed because so many of you get this. There are a lot of churches where people don't get this. That just as many people can get hurt by the absence of strength as the abuse of strength. It happens in both directions. And just as many people I've seen get hurt because no one is willing to take a stand. No one is willing to do anything unpopular. Everyone you want, the, the modus operandi is like me, like me, like me. Don't upset, don't upset. And people can get so 
hurt and massive injustices can happen that way just as well as the other. David, at least when he was on track, was this perfect kind of servant leader. He was strong. David was a warrior. David knew how to kill people. And yet he was always laying down his life for others. Always wanting others to to eat or to drink before he would. Always wanting to show mercy to his enemies. He was a strong man who used his strength to serve others. So that's the first contradiction that isn't. That Peter was an apostle and a servant. Second contradiction that isn't. Our faith is based on the apostles' teaching and yet... Their faith is no better than ours. Here's part of the reason why I spent ten minutes in the introduction defending the authorship of Peter. I I want to make sure that we really believe that Peter wrote this book. Because it makes what he says here so dramatic. The apostles, Ephesians 2.20 says were the foundation of the church. The church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It could be Old Testament prophets, or it could be referring to the apostles who were prophets, these 12 or 13 apostles. But that's the foundation of the church. What is a foundation? It's a once-for-all, non-repeatable. You cannot build the house unless there is a foundation. Ephesians 2.20, the apostles were the foundation of the church. So, yes, under God's sovereign spirit, by his word, under all of that, we can say we owe our faith, we owe our church to the apostles. If it weren't for them, if there were not a foundation, we could not have built this building, literal, but this this expansive church that has lasted for 2,000 years. We owe so much to the apostles. They took The message, they proclaimed the message, they planted churches, they led the church, they resolved conflict, they preserved the gospel, they guarded the good deposit, they wrote letters. Praise God, it wasn't on email, it would have been lost, we'd never have it, but they wrote letters to the churches, became the New Testament, they served with courage and fruitfulness. According to church tradition, 11 of the apostles who went out, Twelve, if you include Paul, were martyred. The only one that wasn't was John, who died as an exile on the island of Patmos. These men, by God's Spirit, became courageous men. We owe our faith, our church, to the apostles. And yet, look at the second part of verse 1. To those, we don't know exactly who it is, it could be the same Audience in 1 Peter 1, the exiles in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Whatever it is, he's writing to some churches, to Christians. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. So who is the ours? Some people have argued that it refers to Gentiles have an equal standing with the Jews, which is true, but I don't see any evidence of, in this book of their, this Jew-Gentile dyna- dynamic being behind the letter. I don't think that there's good reason to think that. So, I would argue, as many others have, that the ours refers to the apostles. If you look at chapter 1, verse 16, he, Peter starts talking in we 
plural, for we did not follow, follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's, he's speaking about his fellow apostles who were witnesses, who have taught, who have passed on this message. So the comparison here is not Jew-Gentile, but Christians out there in the churches scattered abroad. Your faith is of equal standing with the apostles. What does Peter mean by faith? Again, he could mean a subjective commitment, our faith, what you know you you what you believe, your act of believing. Or he could mean objective faith, that is the deposit of what you believe. I think he means something like the combination of the two. He's saying, you believe the same things we do. You believe just like we do. Consequently, your Christian identity, your Christian faith, is equal standing with ours. Faith is a summary word for our entire Christian life and identity. Just like in the potluck with the Carters this afternoon, someone asked them, how has, your, how has the Lord challenged your faith? How has he helped your faith to grow while being in Africa? We all understand that intuitively. Faith, you just talk about your, your Christian walk, your life as a believer. So Peter is saying, you have obtained a faith, a Christian identity, a Christian walk, a life. It's, it's on par with the apostles. And don't get thrown off by this word obtained. Oh, well, obtained, sort of, aha, I got it, I got faith. Other translations say received, which might be a better translation. What the word means, if you look it up in a Greek dictionary, it says obtained by drawing of lots. This word is used three other times in the New Testament, and it always means that. Obtained by drawing of lots. Now, this doesn't mean that, well, you got your faith because God was just, just rolling the dice. What it speaks to is the fact that this faith you have is something that has been given to you. It's, don't, don't, so don't think obtained, I fought and I got it. No, this is something handed to you, something received, just as if you receive by lot something. God has chosen to give you this faith. Faith itself is even a gift. We have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. One of the few times in the New Testament where it explicitly talks about the right, it's often the righteousness of God. Dikaiosune theou in Greek. This is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It could mean that God is fair. That's simply what it's saying. He's righteous. He's, he's fair to give you an equal standing with the apostles. But that doesn't seem in keeping with the way righteousness is usually used in the New Testament. Always used, in fact. It's better to understand this as God's saving righteousness. Whenever righteousness is used with God, it refers to the saving dimension of His work. So the fact that we can have equal standing with the apostles through faith is due to the righteous work of Christ on our behalf. So put this all together. It's an absolutely incredible verse. Peter, not just an apostle. Yes, he was. In the inner circle. I mean, he was there. He says in verses 16 and following, he was there on the Mount of Transfiguration when Christ received honor and glory from the God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. 
And this is better than being a pastor, missionary, Christian superstar. You don't get higher up than this Mount of Transfiguration. I mean, what are you going to put on your curriculum vitae as a Christian? Peter had pre- walked on water briefly and uh, saw Jesus transfigured. Oh, met Moses and Elijah in person. I mean, this he's got a pretty good helped start the church. Which church? Well, the church. Really? This is Peter, chief among equals. And he says, my faith's no more than yours. It's like Jesus' words in John twenty twenty nine. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet have believed. And you see what Peter is doing. He knows he's going to die. What better encouragement could you give as a leader, as a pastor, as a friend before you leave? Peter, how, you imagine what they, they must have been thinking. How, how, do we, we, how do we replace Peter? He can tell us what Jesus was like. He can tell us what Jesus looked like. He knows all the stories. He was there. He can tell us about his denial, how we saw him at the tomb. He can tell us all of this. This is Peter. Miracles. He got visions. Peter. And he's going to die. Peter says, I know. And you have a faith of equal standing with me. And incidentally, it seems hard to square this sentiment of Peter's with any sort of notion that Peter was the first pope or the supreme pontiff or over the whole church. It just seemed to be moving in a totally different direction from Peter here, who at the end of his life wants to equalize his role in the church, equalize his level of authority. There are profound ramifications from this little saying. If Peter can say that we have obtained a faith of equal standing with the apostles. Surely this means that there is no room for haughtiness in our Christian life. And we are all so tempted to it. I am so tempted to it. We don't even realize we're doing it. God looks at us based on faith. We look at everyone else based on works. And yes, you know that we must be obedient to the... We, we, we understand that. But we are so... It's so hardwired into us. It is into my brain to constantly, without even realizing it, sizing people up and sort of feeling a little bit better because of what I read or what I do or what I give. or understand. You have your own comparisons. There's absolutely no room for haughtiness. Peter says you have a faith of equal sin. You have a brother or sister here struggling, weak, in some ways less mature than you, yet in ways far more profound than any of that. You say we are absolutely, absolutely unequal standing through the righteousness of Christ. That means also there is no reason you ought to feel like a second class Christian. 
There's some of us tempted to, to haughtiness. Others of us tempted to feeling that way, sort of slinking into church. Who am I? I? I haven't read these books. I don't know some of these people that you're talking about. Everyone seems to be so knowledgeable and just get everything. And everyone's kids seem to be great. Ha ha ha. Come to our house. Everyone just seems to have it all together. And you don't know my background, what I'm like. And this verse tells us that you don't have to feel like a second class citizen. You have a faith of equal standing with mine, with, with any of us. Faith is the key. It's so ironic and so sad that sometimes people want, in an effort to try to make Christianity more inclusive, more egalitarian, they, they take out this dimension of faith. And so, look, it's not about believing things. It's not about getting your doctrine right. It's about our, how you live and do you love? Are you like Jesus? Are you following the way of Jesus? And that sounds very, very good. And that would just, wouldn't that just alleviate so many problems? And it's not about what you believe and understand. It's just, are you living like Jesus? Do you see how quickly that that will become nothing but constant comparison? Well, I'm living a little bit more like Jesus and you're a little bit less like Jesus. In an effort to try to just make everything very inclusive, it becomes very exclusive. Because then your identity is always based on how close you are to Jesus. Where Peter is moving in the opposite direction. He says, faith is the key. Everything else is leveled. I am what I am by faith. You are what you are by faith. And if you truly believe, you have a faith of equal standing with the apostles. Equally righteous before God and Christ. All of it is a gift. Third, and we'll move through these last two more quickly. Third contradiction that isn't. Jesus Christ is God, and Jesus Christ is not God. Now, just stay with me there. I'll explain what I mean by that. Jesus Christ is God. Look at the end of verse 2, or verse 1. Those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. These are two designations for one person, not two designations for two persons. God and Savior Jesus Christ. So not he's not saying our God, we have we have our God and we have Jesus Christ. Now he's going to say that in the next verse, but that's not what he's saying right here. Two designations for one person. We know that's the case for a couple of reasons, one of which is that this sort of phrase appears several other times in the book. Look at chapter 1 verse 11. At the end of that verse, it says the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Nobody doubts that it's one person. He's our Lord and Savior. Or if you look at chapter 2, verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 2. Same thing. The commandment of our Lord and Savior. And then especially look at this one. Chapter 3, verse 18. And I say especially this one because it's almost identical to the beginning of the book in verses 1 and 2. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Our Lord Jesus is our Savior. Everyone recognize that's two designations for one person. You go back to verse 1. Verse 2 is going to go on to say 
multiplied grace and the knowledge of God and Jesus. But verse 1 says the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Very similar construction all the way through this book. This is one person described with two titles. This is one of the few places, but there are four others, where Jesus Christ in the New Testament is explicitly called God. It's right there. Now, there's lots of other reasons to believe in the deity of Christ. The fact that he was worshipped, the, the way that he fulfilled Old Testament scriptures and on and on. But here it says, the righteousness of our God, our God, Jesus Christ, he's our Savior, Jesus Christ. Two titles that the early church had for Jesus Christ. God, Jesus, Savior, Jesus. So Jesus is God, and yet Jesus is not God. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. You see in verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. There, two different persons. And you can sort of tell in English by the word of. Knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. There's a rule in Greek grammar that has to do with the definite article. And when the definite article is repeated... As it is here in verse 2, it's indicating two different persons when there's only one definite article governing the whole clause up in verse 1, that it's indicating one person. So in verse 1, two separate persons, or one person, God, Savior, Jesus Christ, one person here, it's distinguished. God and Jesus Christ. So one of the best rules of interpreting Scripture the author was not stupid. And so Peter is not contradicting himself in the space of a few words. He says up in verse 1, Jesus Christ is God. Verse 2, well, now Jesus Christ is, something, is someone different than God. Now, all the commentators just sort of backpedal. It's almost they're scared to see too much of the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, we don't... There's not a full-blown doctrine of the Trinity. We... There's a lot of blown doctrine of the Trinity right here already. That Jesus, Peter understands, can be called God, and yet in another sense, he is, he is not God, thinking of God the Father. So the early church understood, we have Jesus Christ who is the very center of our faith. And he's God. We, we call him God. We worship him as God. And yet, we can also think of him as a person distinct from God the Father. We have here already very developed, within a few decades of Christ's death and resurrection, this theology of the Trinity, that Christ is fully divine, and yet there are more than one persons in the Godhead. So that God the Son is not identical with God the Father. They share the same essence, glory, power, and yet they are two persons. The whole Christian faith depends on this contradiction that isn't a contradiction. That Jesus Christ is our God. And He came and He was also distinct from our God, the Father. Fourth, finally. Fourth contradiction of the Christian faith that isn't. Grace and peace come 
through knowledge. See, verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is not unlike the the ironic blessing in Numbers 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Those weren't just throwaway words. It was, it was praying over the people the absolute best thing that could ever happen to them. That God would smile upon them. That God would have favor upon them in a way that he doesn't for everyone else. He would look upon you and say, yes, my son, my daughter. He would bless you. That's, that's the sort of blessing that Peter has in mind. And he does it with these two words that sum up the blessings of the Christian faith. Grace. In peace. He's, don't think this is just a throwaway word. Eh, good luck. Hello. That is a greeting, but it's more than that. It's Peter's way of saying, may God's favor, may His shalom, may the unsearchable riches of His kindness, may His face smile upon you. May He bless you. This covenant God, may He look upon you with His favor. So there's this warm, emotive, blessing, grace, and peace being multiplied. May it grow. May you experience God's mercy. May you feel His peace. May you flourish in His love. And all of this, this is, comes through knowledge. Knowledge implies relationship, so it's not just bare assent to truth. But let's not push too far in the other direction. There is a cognitive element here. We do know, we do need to know who God is, what He's like, what He has done, what He demands. Head without heart is always a danger in the Christian and it's just as much of a danger to have heart without head. I, I hear two, two sorts of Voices sometimes. Maybe I'm just exacerbating the problem by stereotyping in this way. But two sorts of voices that, that ought to be on the same page, and I think really are. One hand, you have folks who will talk very much about doctrine, about knowledge, about how important it is to learn and to study and to understand. And no one, no one here would disagree with that. But then there are others who, while wanting to acknowledge every yes, but knowledge puffs up. And it's not just that. And you've got to be careful that we don't just become eggheads. And who would want to disagree with that? I want to try to offer a, a different phrase that can help get those two concerns. So instead of saying, well, knowledge of God is important, but... And then you go on to say, but it's not everything, but it can be abused, but it can puff up. So I'm just suggesting instead of the word but, let's put two words, so that. Same, same thing, but it, it sounds different and it means something a little different. So knowledge of God is important, so that, ah, so not but, well, knowledge, but, and also you're, you're, you're making an antithesis. You're a knowledge person, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a feeling person. You're a head person, I'm a heart person. Knowledge, but. No, that's, you don't want to, so you're, you're separating. 
So we say, knowledge of God is important so that. Aha, okay, now you're acknowledging. But it's, it's not just to land there. It's knowledge of God so that we can worship so that we can love so that we can serve so that we can teach so that we can have mercy so that we can display God's goodness. So not but, but so that. The problem is not too much knowledge or too much doctrine or caring too much about thinking. The problem is when knowledge becomes a vat instead of a vessel. So if if you think of knowledge as a vat, and here it is, and you just you just got a big knowledge doctrine vat in your head here, and some of you feel like my vat is so small and it's so big, and but you just have this, and you just sort of pour things in there, and there it is, and some apologetics, and you're reading you know, whoever, I mean Calvin and Edwards, and reading all these people, and just there he is, it's just a vat, and he just kind of pours it in there and just expanding until his or her brain hurts and just sort of these people are bobbleheads. There's so much up here and you don't want to be around because they're going to bop into you. But if you're a a vessel, then you can't get too much because it's flowing through you. it's, It's going somewhere. It's giving life. It's doing something. So it's... Think of blood. If you had bucket of blood. Kind of, kind of gross? Thanks, Louie. It is kind of gross. Okay? You just got a big bucket of blood and you, you know, every day you just pour more blood in there and it's got a weird kind of irony smell to it and anybody want, you're going to walk around with that in church and here's me and I just, a big, want to see it? Bucket of blood right there. It's, just, it's a vat and it's, yeah, what are you doing with all of that? You don't, you need all that? Bucket of blood, but if you may, if you have a vessel, you have a heart. Oh, we need lots of blood all the time. More blood. People give bloods when people who lose blood need it, and it's because it's pumping and it's always going through. And then you're a person and you're fully alive, and you're not a, a stinky vat and just carrying it around. And, oh, kind of gross when you just have all your knowledge in a big vat. But when it's in a vessel, well, you can't get too much of it, and it's life to everyone around you. So mercy and grace and peace multiplying through knowledge. It's one of the concerns we'll see in this book. Peter's concern for knowledge propelled grace. Grace empowered knowledge. That's why he starts and ends the letter. Verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Chapter 3, verse 18, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So that's... In the beginning, that's what he wants. Grace and peace to you as you learn, as you grow. Knowledge at conversion as you understand and receive grace. Knowledge as you continue to grow and enjoy him more. So here's two questions to leave you with. Number one, are you growing in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord? Are you growing in that? You say, yeah, I've... I've learned, I've learned things. I've, I've gotten some new categories. I've, I've heard some new words. I'm, I'm understanding verses I didn't understand before. I'm seeing dimensions of God that, I, that I've never thought about before. I'm not trying to be smartest, or I'm not even caring if I seem like the dumbest, but I'm, I'm just I'm learning and I'm loving it. Are you learning 
You're growing in knowledge. Second question. Is your growth in knowledge leading to a multiplication of grace and peace? If it's not, then you're just a, a, a vat. And you're just a bucket of blood walking around. And people are going, gross, you smell. and Yuck. If you're a vessel and you're pumping so that you, you're growing in knowledge and it's leading to you have more, you experience more grace and peace in your life. You're, you're multiplying it to others. People are recognizing you more as a gracious person, as a peaceful person, one who brings grace and peace flowing through you. Growing in knowledge. Multiplying grace and peace. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for these two verses teaching us, helping us. Bless us as we study this book over several months. And may we grow in the knowledge of our God and Savior Jesus Christ so that we may be filled with grace and peace and overflowing to others. In Jesus' name, amen.